The scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 49, verses 7 to 12. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his coat to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Linda, for the scripture reading. Today we have the honor of having Brian Bueller and his wife, um, Myrna, with us. Brian has been serving in the pastoral ministry for 40 years. He has been serving as a lead pastor and preaching pastor for the past 30 years. And Brian is also gifted in serving pastors and leaders in two important areas, which is spiritual direction and homiletical coaching. So not only we have the honor of having Brian to share the word of God with us on this first Sunday of Lent, he will be with us for the whole Lent season um, until Easter. Um, I believe through the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, we will be blessed by Brian's ministry in this season. So and now, without further ado, let us welcome Brian. <laughs> Can I pray for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let us pray um, for Brian. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing Brian um, into our midst. We pray that through his sharing, our life will be strengthened, our heart will be sanctified, and our spirit will be edified, mm. and that we will be your faithful disciples in our community. Speak to us, Lord. We are here to receive your word. Mm. Amen. Amen. Greetings, First Baptist. So great to be here. We've been anticipating this uh, journey together. Thank you for inviting us to journey for almost eight weeks through Lent. Uh, this is a preacher's dream to be able to develop something over such a long period of time. Uh, we hope to meet many of you. Who knows, maybe all of you over the next couple of months, but it won't happen today for a number of reasons. One, because as soon as I'm done preaching, we have to scoot out of here, even before the service is over, because I'm speaking in White Rock at noon at my own church. So, yeah, it's, it's a busy Sunday. But starting next week, we will hang around as long as we need to to get to know as many of you as we possibly can. We've worshipped at First Baptist many times over the years. And uh, so in many ways, though, we are strangers to you. Um, you are not strangers to us. We, we came here quite often when my sister, Andrea Tischer, 
was on staff here. And you might be asking, well, why are you so old and Andrea is so young if you're siblings? <laughs> and there are reasons that I won't go into today, but I think my sister may have had something to do with me getting this gig. So sis, if you're listening to this, I love you, thank you, and I, and I owe you. For the next seven Sundays, we are going to be uh, looking at this whole idea of seeing portraits of Jesus from the law, the Psalms, the prophets, the gospels, and the epistles. And we don't want to jump the gun with, with an Easter theme. We want to live in, in the sufferings of Christ. But I, I would really love for our hearts to burn within us as Jesus reveals himself from all of Scripture, and that we see the suffering servant in the law, the Psalms, the prophets, the Gospels, and the epistles. There is a scarlet thread running through the whole Bible, uh, a thread of redemption. And when things look as dark as they can possibly be, we see God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We see it in the very beginning, after Adam and Eve make their fateful decision that brings sin into the human race, God immediately moves towards them and covers their nakedness with the skin of an animal. And then after pronouncing his judgment or his curse upon the original couple, he looks at Eve and he says, but it's okay because the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that is perhaps the first time we see the scarlet thread of redemption. That's the first messianic prophecy going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So, uh, this morning we are going to be in Genesis, as you already know from the scripture reading, and I will be jumping around somewhere between Genesis 37 and 49. Don't worry, we will not read all those chapters. But we will see the scarlet thread in the narrative of Joseph, though Joseph will not be the primary character today. The message or the story begins with Joseph strutting into dinner wearing a beautiful Giorgio Armani jacket. <laughs> One of the brothers looks at him and says, where did you get that? And he said, daddy. Of course he did. Because everybody knows that Joseph and Benjamin were dad's favorite sons because they were sons of Jacob's favorite wife. Yes, this was a blended family. And it was a polygamous marriage. And by now we all know that the book of Genesis is the original handbook on dysfunctional families. And this one was very, very dysfunctional. Apart from just their jealousy over Joseph's coat of many colors, uh, Joseph, for whatever reason, uh, thought it was proper to make his dreams known to the brothers. Dreams of him rising to prominence, of him getting to the top of the pecking order, of him being the greatest in the entire family, that someday the whole family would be bowing down to him. And remember what James said. He said, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And the jealousy and disorder and evil of at least 10 of the brothers rose up in them and they concocted a dark plan to murder their brother. But Judah said, no, we're not going to murder him. Let's sell him 
to a band of traveling Ishmaelites heading south to Egypt, we'll be rid of Joseph, and we'll go home with money in our pockets. And so that's what they did. They took his beautiful coat off of him first, covered it in animal's blood, and took it to Jacob, their father, and said, we're so sorry, Dad, but your favorite son has been killed by a wild beast. And Jacob started to grieve that day, and he did not stop grieving the death of Joseph for 20 years. And the 10 brothers kept a family secret for 20 years. Meanwhile, Joseph is in Egypt. What's he doing? He's suffering from PTSD. He has been yanked from his family, sold, betrayed. He has to learn a new culture. He has to learn Egyptian, a brand new language. He has to work as a slave for Potiphar. Things are not going well for him, but we're really not going to talk about Joseph right now. Let's just say this, that the Bible says that the hand of God was upon Joseph in Egypt. But the sermon is not about Joseph. It's about another brother. His name is Judah. Judah was not a good man. He was the black sheep in the family. One day he came home and said to his dad, I've fallen in love with a girl. Her name is Shua, but unfortunately for you, she's a Canaanite. He became a synchronistic believer that day. Some days he was a Hebrew, some days he was a Canaanite. Judah and his new wife had three sons. The Bible says that they were wicked sons. Their names were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. When Ur was old enough to get married, he found a girl by the name of Tamar, which in Hebrew means date palm. And when you read it, if you, if you understand the Hebrew language, as I don't, but I can read the commentaries, you wonder if this young girl who marries this wicked man will somehow, by the grace of God, bear the sweetest fruit for the entire world. But it's not going well for Tamar because her husband is not a good man and God could see it and it says that God took him out. God judged him and Ur died. Now, in the typical ancient way, there was what was called a leveret marriage where the next brother in line, even if he was already married, would take the widow under his care to provide children for her so she would not be childless in her old age. So Onan married Tamar. And the Bible says that Onan was extremely wicked. And there's the very famous verse in the Bible, and it's probably a good thing that the teenage boys left. It says that Onan spilled his seed upon the ground. In other words, he used Tamar as an object for his own pleasure, but refused to provide her children because of his hatred for his older brother. And it says, this was exceedingly wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. So now Tamar is twice widowed, and Judah, her father-in-law, thinks the problem is her, not him, and the sons. And in a classic case of ancient gaslighting, he basically says that. The problem is you. Look what's happened to me. I've lost two of my sons, and you happen to be widowed. So Judah said to Tamar, when my youngest son, Shelah, is old enough to marry you, I will give him to you as your husband so that you can bear children. 
but he had no intention of doing that. And so Tamar, now living with her father and being cared for by him, could see that when Shelah was old enough to marry and Judah did not give her to him or him to her, she said, hmm, I think I will take things into my own hands. And when Shua, Judah's wife, died, she decided to seduce her father-in-law. And this is how she did it. She heard that Judah was going to Timnah for sheep shearing festivities, which is basically like, basically like a weekend in Vegas. She put on her best, what we would say today in traditional language, her best red dress, sprayed a little night of ecstasy behind her ear, and veiled her face so that her father-in-law would not recognize her and she would appear as a temple prostitute. When he was en route to Timnah, she set herself up knowing where he was going to be and solicited his business. And being the double-minded man that he is, didn't even think twice about it. He said, sure, of course. She said, my price is a young male goat. He said, well, you can see that I'm not carrying a young male goat with me, but I can send my servant to you tomorrow with a goat. She said, no problem. I take credit. She took his signature staff, his signature ring, and the cord around his neck. It was like taking his social insurance number, his passport, and his driver's license. It is amazing what some people will do for a few minutes of pleasure. They did the deed, and he went on to Timnah for sheep-sharing festivities. The next day, he said to his servant, listen, there's a woman I had sex with yesterday, and she's got my three pieces of ID, and I need them back. So take the best young male goat we've got and go to this particular place and do the exchange. And so he did that. But when he got to the village where apparently this prostitute lived, there was no such woman there. And so he went back to Judah and he said, looks like you're out of luck. And Judah from that day forward knew that there was a woman on the loose with his three pieces of ID. Meanwhile, Tamar, through that singular act of sex, became pregnant. And it says that when she was three months pregnant, the town fathers noticed it, and like the Pharisees in John 8, dragged the woman caught in the act of adultery, not to Jesus, but to Judah. Now, the reason why they could tell at three months is because she was bearing how many children? Two. She was carrying twins. And they said, look at your daughter-in-law. She's been playing the harlot. We all know she's a widow. She's not married. What should we do with her? And Judah, in, in, in a moment of, of almost unspeakable self-righteousness, says, burn her at once. And while they are crafting this fire to throw Tamar in, she says, before you kill me, is anybody interested in who the father is? Anybody interested in who got me pregnant? And suddenly all the town fathers were all there. Yes, tell us. See, well, let's, let's read it. Uh, Genesis 38, 
About three months later, this is verse 24, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Let's stop there. For the first time, Judah was caught red-handed, and not even O.J. Simpson's lawyers could get him out of this one. <laughs> what would Judah do? What strange twist would take place in the story? Well, let's just put a bookmark there for a minute, and let's go back down to Egypt and see how Joseph's doing. In fact, let's fast forward 20 years into the future. Joseph is now the most powerful man in Egypt. During the seven years of a bull market, he saved enough cash and grain to not only feed Egypt, but the entire ancient world, the Bible says. And so during the bear market, when everybody was starving, Old Jacob sends his 10 sons down to Egypt to buy grain. And so they go with their bags full of money. You know the story, so I won't take a lot of time with it. But the 10 brothers fall before Joseph, and they say, please save us. Our family lives up north in a place called Canaan. And uh, Joseph recognizes them and, and just really almost comes apart. He's triggered by their presence. He leaves for a while, comes back, and he's very gruff with them. He says, who are you? And how many of your family members are still alive? Do you have any brothers that are still living? That was a very important question. But yes, yes, we are. Our father's name is Jacob. And yes, there is one boy, Benjamin. But if anything happened to him, oh, it would be terrible because when they told him the story and he said, you're spies, I can't trust you. And one of the brothers says, no, we're not spies. We are honest men. And so Joseph said, okay, I will send you back home with enough grain to feed your family. However, I'm going to take this man as my slave. And he grabbed, which brother? Do any of you remember? This is Bible trivia. Simeon. Simeon. Simeon will be my slave and you will never see him alive again unless when you get back home on your second trip, you bring with you Benjamin. Well, the brothers were not pleased with this, but that's exactly what they did. And on the second journey back, with their bags now empty, uh, they had Benjamin with them. And when Joseph saw Benjamin, the text says he left the room and he sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. He got control of himself. He brought himself in, and he said, now that all the brothers are together, we will have a feast. And he killed the fatted calf, and it says they, they ate and drank all night, and Benjamin had five times as much food on his plate as all the other brothers. Do you think Joseph was playing with the brothers? The next morning, they loaded up their sacks with grain and sent them back up north towards their family. But you know the story this time. The secret police of Joseph chased them down and said, we have reason to believe that one of you is a thief. And they said, how, how could we do such a thing when, when this man has been so good to us? And so it says, beginning with Reuben, the oldest, and all the way down to the youngest, they opened up their sacks. This is like being at the border. This is the worst day at customs imaginable. 
and everything's opened up, nothing stolen, nothing stolen, until they get to Benjamin, Joseph's blood brother, and they open up his sack, and sure enough, there it is, Joseph's silver chalice, and the secret police say, you guys are in big trouble, and they drag them before Joseph, and they fall before Joseph, and Joseph says, you guys, I've been so good to you. Look at how gracious I've been to you. Don't you know that Egyptians can find things out by divinations? We, we, we practice occultic arts. I knew that this was going to happen. And then he said, well, let's read it. This is chapter 44, verse 14. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground, and Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied? What can we say? How can we prove our servant's innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Now notice this. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, Oh, far be it for me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back home to your father in peace. Shalom. <laughs> and this is the test. Joseph wants to see if anybody in this dysfunctional, corrupt family had had a change of heart in the last 20 years. And you know who steps forward? Judah. And he gives the most passionate speech in the entire Old Testament. And in the end, this is what he says. Now then, please let your servant remain here. Let me remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Do you see what's happening here? Somebody who is not guilty, Judah, is offering his life as a vicarious sacrifice for the guilty. He's saying, take me. Punish me. Make me your slave. I will suffer on behalf of the boy, but let the boy go free. The black sheep becomes the sacrificial lamb. The family narcissist becomes the Christ figure in the story. Up until now, Joseph's been the Christ figure. Not anymore. Chapter 45 says that Joseph completely became unglued. He sent everybody out of the room except his brothers. He would have torn off his Egyptian hat. He would have started speaking pure Hebrew for the first time. And he said to them, don't you guys recognize me? I'm Joseph. I'm the one that you sold into slavery. And they reeled and they were so frightened. And he said, don't be afraid. For though you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Now, Go back home and bring your father and the whole rest of the covenant family, and I will take care of you. But here's the question. What happened to Judah? Why was Judah so unself-serving, so generous, so gracious? What happened to him? Well, 20 years earlier, when he was found out, when it was very obvious that he was a man living a double life, 
When Tamar said, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are, verse 26 of chapter 38 says, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. And then it says, and he did not sleep with her again. Judah chooses repentance over blame shifting. This is actually the first public confession of sin in the Bible. And Judah also chooses a new path where Tamar, for the first time in her life, is honored by a man and respected by a man and no longer used as an object to be used for a man's pleasure. There is a massive shift, and Tamar, thankfully, is not executed that day. She brings her twins to term, and in so doing, fulfills the meaning of her name, date palm. Tamar provides the sweetest fruit for the entire world. And uh, you, you might be going, well, it's great that she had a couple baby boys, and that's really wonderful, but how does that affect me? How does it affect you? Well... One of her baby boys, Perez, is in the royal genealogy of Jesus. This is such an incredible story of God's grace. And then we go to the last will and testament, Jacob handing it out to all of his sons, the text that was read for us this morning, and let me just read it again. Now that we know the whole story, Judah says, Jacob, your brothers will praise you. Hold it. The story started out with Joseph being the one where the brothers were going to bow down and praise him, but that's all changed now. There's been a shift of power in the universe, so to, so to speak. Your brothers will praise you and your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Notice this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In other words, royalty is going to come from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Now, this part's strange, but let me explain it very quickly. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments with wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. In other words, when Messiah comes from the line of Judah, there will be so much abundance, so much wine, which was an Old Testament symbol for abundance, that you could tie your donkey to the choicest vine and not worry if he eats all the grapes because there's going to be supernatural wine. The wine, says Amos, will run down the, mount, the mountain like a waterfall. That much wine? Yes, there'll be so much wine, you can wash your garments in it. You can use the wine as scrub water. When and where in the history of the world was there so much wine in one place that everyone there could not only have a couple of drinks but wash their clothes in it? The wedding feast of Cana 
where Jesus chose his first miracle to manifest his messianic glory and made so 153 gallons of wine, they figured. And this is after the guests were already three sheets to the wind. Jesus was making a point. I am the lion from the tribe of Judah. Somebody, and I don't know who, noticed Tamar's name in the genealogy of Jesus in Genesis 1. As he kept reading, he noticed there were a number of other women that were mentioned, and they all had very difficult lives. And so tongue-in-cheek, he writes this to sum it all up. He said, exceedingly odd is the means by which God has provided his path to the heavenly shore. For of the girls from whose line the true light was to shine, there was one an adulteress and one a whore. There was Tamar who bore what we all should deplore, a fine pair of twins by her father-in-law, and Rahab the harlot, her sins were as scarlet, as red as the thread she hung from the door. Yet alone from her nation, she came to salvation and came to be mother of Boaz of yore, and he married Ruth, a Gentile uncouth, in a manner quite counter to biblical lore. Yet from her there did spring blessed David the king, who walked on his palace one evening and saw the wife of Uriah, from whom he did sire, a baby that died, oh, and princes a score. And a mother unmarried, it was too that carried God's son and laid him in a manger of straw that the moral might wait at the heavenly gate while sinners and publicans go in before who have not earned their place but received it by grace and have found them a righteousness not of the law. What's the message? I think it's pretty obvious. It doesn't matter how far or deep we have fallen into sin There is a way out. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. We also are reminded that we never want to post the score on a person's life at halftime. God is not finished with the prodigals that are in our lives. He's not finished with you. He's not finished with me. And today, if your situation looks dark and hopeless and somewhat beyond God's redemption, I want to remind us all today of what the angel said to St. John on the island of Patmos. When he was exiled, he saw very little hope for the church. The seven churches that he was pastoring were in real trouble, both morally and through persecution. And he was weeping and weeping because there was nobody worthy to break the seal and open the scroll and explain to him how all of this was going to work out for the good. And the angel said, oh, John, stop weeping, for the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to break the seal and to open the scroll. This is the one that we get to follow for the next seven weeks. May our hearts burn within us by his grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. 
For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.